0: Heavenly Father, please play for, we pray for Sean, and uh, we thank you that he's here this morning, and now we ask that uh, you would use his mouth uh, to speak your words. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to accept your word. I pray that you would uh, open our hearts to the message, and that we would be changed, and that uh, because of this morning, because of this weekend, Lord, that your gospel would go forth, and that the nations would come to know you. Lord, we thank you so much, and we praise your holy name. Amen. Amen. Um, So, just like Marty said, uh, I hail from Arkansas, and I always tell people that when you're from Arkansas, um, it's great to be anywhere. Uh, So, yeah, you got to appreciate that, don't you? Um, Including Fargo, right? Uh, My mom grew up in Minot, so um, there's some close connections here, some ties, things like that. So. Hey, I am excited to be with you guys this morning, Uh, genuinely and sincerely. I wasn't sure, like many, whether or not the Lord was going to get me here um, per the flight last night, but uh, I'm here. Uh, It's not the first time that I've had a chance to teach and preach at River City. Uh, I think I was here probably three years ago-ish. And so eager to be back with you this morning um, and to share God's word with you guys. Uh, Would love to start um, our time this morning. Um, by autobiography and just tell you a little bit about myself, how I got here, what it has to do with you guys, uh, what we're going to be sharing this morning, this evening, um, and in the nights to come. And so a little bit about Sean. Growing up, I was raised in a textbook blue-collar family, and as a young kid, uh, my dad's idea of fun would be to take me out on the weekends with him and make me help him cut wood. Uh, We had a wood stove that we heated our house with, And so I remember spending a number of my weekends and a number of my Saturdays in the woods with my dad running a chainsaw. I was probably somewhere between the ages of like 7 and 10 years old, uh, which is like a lawsuit, right, (laughs) waiting to happen in today's world. And I remember thinking to myself on multiple occasions, right, what on earth are we doing out here? Um, And because it was so miserable for me, I remember on a regular basis uh, making my complaints known to my father. And so when we would go out to cut wood, I would regularly let my dad know um, that he was a terrible dad and that his intentions for taking me in the woods were a waste of my time because I could be doing much better things like melting my brain, playing video games and stuff like that. But my father had different intentions and different plans, and so that's where we spent a lot of our time on the weekends together, was out cutting wood. And what would always happen is whenever I would begin to start complaining, my dad would always silence my complaint by saying the following words to me. He would say, Sean, um, I'm tired of hearing you complain. I want you to be quiet and listen to what I'm about to tell you. If you never want to spend another day of your life cutting a piece of wood or dragging a piece of brush then listen very carefully to the instruction I'm about to give you. He would say, Sean, here's what you need to know about life. You need to grow up. Okay, You need to take your education seriously. You need to go to college. And the reason you need to go to college is so that you can get a great degree. And the reason that you need to get a great degree is so that you can get a great paying job. And the reason that you need to get a great paying job is so that you can pay someone else to cut your wood. And I was like, Dad, that's genius. Um, Right, It just made sense to me. It was pretty straightforward. It was very clear to me um, that I didn't want to spend the rest of my days cutting wood and dragging brush, which is quite hilarious because when my wife and I bought our house in Fayetteville, Arkansas six years ago, lo and behold, what do you think sits in our living room? (laughs) A wood-burning stove, right? The Lord has this sense of humor. And so that's what I heard as a young kid growing up from my dad, that really my purpose in life... Uh, was to chase this thing that we call the American dream. And my dad never couched it in those terms, um, but that was the substance of what he was telling me that I was to do with my life. And, you know, my dad was well-meaning. He was well-intentioned. I love him. I'm thankful for what he told me uh, because, quite frankly, as any good loving father would want, He wanted the best for me, he wanted me to have a better life than he had, but I took his words, I took this weekend mantra that I heard from him, right, to pursue college, to pursue it a great degree, so I could get a great education, so I could get this great paying job, and I turned it into this great excuse to chase this thing that we call the American dream. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of what I'm talking about. Three, okay, okay, I got a little nervous, a few of you were raising your hand slowly, but yeah, um, I heard my father tell me that my purpose and pursuit in life was to live this thing that we call the American dream, this comfortable American life. And it's not only what my dad was telling me to do, but it's also what my classmates, my peers, it's what society and culture was telling me that my purpose in life was. And so I was convinced that from all the noises that I was hearing, those who were well-intentioned and those who were not, that that's what I was supposed to do, right? Was settle into this thing that we call the comfortable American life, right? This comfortable American life. And if I could really, I I was convinced that that's what I was supposed to be doing. And so in high school, I took my education as seriously as I could. And I graduated from high school. I had the opportunity to go to college um, and to pursue a degree like my dad encouraged me to do. And so I headed off to college chasing this thing called the American Dream. And if I could sum up in a few simple words my entry into collegiate life, um, I would have summed up my exit from high school into college with the following statements. Life at that point, graduating high school and heading into college, was really about me. It was about my agenda Right To pursue my dreams, my goals, my hopes, my wants, my ambitions, my desires. And then there was just a, a little bit of God and a little bit of Jesus if it was convenient for me to squeeze Him in. Right, My on-ramp to college was about me, it was about my agenda, and it was about a little bit of God as long as it was convenient, as long as God didn't interrupt my life, as long as God did not ask too much of me. Then I was fine to have Jesus sort of along for the ride. And what ended up happening, by God's good grace, was he sent a minister into my path my sophomore year of college. And I wasn't looking for this guy. Um, Quite frankly, I felt like I kind of got T boned by him. And um, this guy sat me down, um, this this minister, and it it was actually a campus minister. And he sat me down, um, and after hearing my story and after hearing where I was headed, he said, Sean, there's a few things that I want to share with you in light of what you've told me about your own story and your own testimony. Um, Number one, and you're probably not going to like what I have to say to you, Sean, but even though you're not going to like it, you probably need to hear it. So brace yourself. And he looked at me and he said, Sean, um, number one, um, life is not about you, okay? Uh, uh, Number two, life is really not about your agenda, Um, And number three, you should probably think about getting over yourself. Okay, I heard two people laugh. (laughs) Um, I didn't think it was funny. I actually felt like it was a punch in the mouth. Uh, And this guy was very direct, right? He was very straightforward, to the point. He was blunt, and he just told it to me like it was. Um, That life, right, um, was not about me, and that it was not about my agenda, um, and that I needed to get over myself. And it felt, quite frankly, like swallowing a, a grapefruit. Um, and part of the reason why is because I'm sinful, right? I want to live for myself, my own comforts, my own pleasures, my own self-indulgences. Um, but the other reason it was a difficult thing for me to hear is because uh, I'm an only child. Um, some of you are like, oh, it's starting to make sense now, um, Right. Uh, And so not only am I sinful um, as an only child, the the world tends to any only children in the room this morning. (laughs) Yeah, a few of us we will talk after the service. Uh, The world tends to revolve around you when you're an only child and it becomes a very, very small place when you're all wrapped up in yourself. And so here I was sitting face to face with this God sent minister who was willing to tell me the hard truth that life wasn't about me, that it wasn't about my agenda, but that it was about God's agenda and that I should think about getting over myself. And, and that's what what ended up happening was he wouldn't let me off the hook. He said, Sean, uh, not only do you want to uh, should you think about getting over yourself and your agenda, But let me take it one step further and let me remind you that not only is life not about you and not about your agenda, but it is about God and it's about God's agenda. And what he did next, um, literally, you guys, changed the entire trajectory of my life. Um, He opened up God's word and he said, Sean, I want to share with you from God's word what God's agenda is and what God's purpose is. And God's purpose is quite simple. It's quite basic. It's making Himself known worldwide among every tongue, every tribe, all nations, and all languages. And He's doing that through the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ. He's doing that through Christ's life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. And I want you to see that from God's Word. I don't want you to take me at my word, but I want you to see it from God's Word. And what this guy did next was he opened up God's Word... And he walked me from Genesis chapter 1, right, all the way through the, through the book of Revelation. He even actually went through the maps. Did you guys know there are maps in the back of your Bible? Um, they're helpful. They teach us a lot. And this guy did something that I'd never seen before, walking me from verse to verse to verse, narrative to narrative, story to story, progressive revelation to progressive revelation, showing, from, t- showing me from God's word Really what God's purpose was to make God known among all the nations, right? And, and up to that point in my Christian life, um, I had never seen God's word talked about that way. I had never heard a biblical story from Genesis to Revelation unfolding God's glory and his purpose to make himself known. Um, up to that point in my Christian life, not only had I never heard the Bible talked about that way, I'd never heard God talked about that way, but I'd never heard God's world and this thing that we call global missions talked about in that way. Um, if I can be honest with you, it, at that point in my Christian life, um, I was very indifferent towards global missions, okay? I was quite apathetic towards global missions, um, I could have cared less. I was convinced at that point in my Christian life that this thing that we call missions, that was for someone else somewhere else, right? But it was certainly not for me. Um, if I could take it one step further and um, just pull back the veil a little bit, I, I thought that missions was for weird people who did not fit in in America, so you mail them overseas, okay? Some of you can't believe I said that. Some of you are thinking it, and you just won't admit it, okay? Uh, And I don't mind saying that because some of my dearest friends on the planet are serving in some of the hardest parts of the world. And they're certainly cut from a bit of a different cloth. But here's the point. The point is, right, at that point, I was not interested in missions. And all of a sudden, here I was face to face with God's word and God in a way that I never had been before. And by the time this minister got done walking me through the scriptures, my agenda was in this little pile of ashes smoldering over here. And I was under great conviction, under great conviction from the Spirit through God's Word. And it became very apparent to me by the time we got through the whole Bible that this thing that we call global missions, that it really matters to God. And it became very apparent to me that if I called myself a Christian and I waved the banner of Jesus Christ over my life, then if missions matter to God, then I was faced with this question of, of, does, does missions matter to me, right? If we call ourselves Christians and we're united to Christ, who is the head, which we read about, right? And the call to worship, the head of all things. If, if we're united to the head and if missions matters to the head, then certainly missions should matter to what? The body. And so I was facing this question, does missions really matter to me? Is it important to me like it's important to the Lord? And over time, God has grown my heart for the nations, um, as I've spent more time in his word, and even as I travel and teach on missions. And so this morning, just let me, like, just, just, I want to project for you where we're going. This morning, what I came here to share with you guys, River City, is I want to walk you through God's word, okay? And we're going to walk through the whole Bible, and we're going to try to get it done in about 30 minutes, okay? And I want to walk you from Genesis to Revelation, and I want you to see from God's word, um, what I saw a number of years ago through this minister. And I hope that you'll recognize that this thing that we call global missions, right? It's not Sean's idea. Um, it's not River City's idea. It, it's not just something that we carve out once a year for this great commission conference. But really this this thing that we call missions, um, it matters to God. It's not something that we see just in the New Testament, but it's in the entire scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so I want you to walk with me through that story. And I want you to see from God's word um, exactly what God's purpose is to make himself known among all nations. And so if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to try to follow along with me. Um, But we're going to be looking at a number of verses and we're going to be doing quite quickly. So if you just want to take notes of where these verses are located and then go back and look at them later, that might be a better way to approach this. Um, But we're going to get started in Genesis chapter one, where God gets started with Adam and Eve. And so If you want to go ahead and bring that up in Genesis chapter one, the story gets started with two people, Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 128, God comes to Adam and Eve and he gives them the very first commandment in the Bible. And this is what we're told that it says. God blessed them. And God said to them, uh, be fruitful and multiply. And I want you to fill the earth. And so this is the very first commandment that God gives mankind in Scripture And if you think about it, right, long enough and hard enough, this is about the only commandment that we have actually managed to keep. Okay, you can think about that on your drive home. (coughs) Okay, God comes to Adam and Eve and says, Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now to clarify, in case you missed it, what God is saying is this, Adam and Eve, I literally want you to reproduce physically. Okay, I want you to grow your family, I want you to grow it big children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and I want you to spread out, and I want you to fill the earth. Fill the earth. And here's why this is important, because in Genesis chapter 1, at this point in the story, there is no sin between God and mankind. They are actually living in a perfect relationship with one another, and so in essence, here's what God is saying. Adam and Eve, as you begin to fill the earth physically, I want you to teach and train your descendants what it means to know me To worship me and to obey me because that's why I've created you, right? That's why I've built you. That's why I've made you is to know me and worship me. Don't miss this because what God's after, right? What God's after is a planet full of people who know him and worship him. That's what God wants is a planet full of people who know him and worship him. However, we know in, uh, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3 that man, what, sins, and they sever their relationship with God. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Bible tells us that every intention in mankind's heart was only set on evil. Six chapters into the Bible, utter wickedness fills the earth. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 7, God responds to man's sin, floods the earth, and kills everyone and everything with the exception of Noah, his family, and the animals two by two. And then as the story continues, you'll notice in Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, Noah steps off the boat, and what does God command Noah and his family? God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and do what River City? What's it say? Fill the earth. Okay, notice, notice we're not more than 10 chapters into the entire Bible, and twice already God has commanded mankind to fill the earth. Fill the earth. The command is crystal clear, unchanging, and the same. But what's different, right? The command's the same, but what's different between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9? The answer? Sin. Sin has now entered the story and mankind is at rebellion with God, not indifferent towards God, not neutral towards God, but at rebellion with him. Paul's going to tell us over in Romans chapter eight, right, that mankind is at enmity with God. They hate God. And why do they hate him? Because they would rather rule their own lives autonomously. They don't want God in their life, right? This is the mess that we find ourselves in by believing the lie of Satan, right? That did God really say? And so mankind is at rebellion with God, nine chapters into the Bible. And as the story continues on, we find ourselves a couple chapters later at the story of Babel. Can you, can you back up? I've got a clicker, by the way. Did you know that? Okay. <laughs> uh, there we go. Um, We find ourselves at Genesis chapter 11, and this is what we're told in the scripture. Catch this. This is fascinating. Now the whole earth, just 11 chapters in, now the whole earth had one language and a common speech. Okay, so no matter where you went on planet earth, 11 chapters into the Bible, everybody was speaking how many languages, River City? One. English, right? And as men moved eastward... It says they found a plane in a place called Shinar and they settled there. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower that reaches up to the sky. Why? So that we might make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What had God commanded mankind to do? God said, fill the earth, fill the earth. God says go, and mankind says what? No. Now, you don't have to have great Bible interpretation skills to figure out that this is what we call direct disobedience. This is the apex of obstinance and rebellion towards God. God says, fill the earth. Mankind says, we'll settle. God says, go. Mankind says, no. No. God says, make my name great. And mankind says, we'll make what? Our name great. Nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. Me, my agenda and my name and a little bit of Jesus, if it's convenient. Right? Eleven chapters in. There's the story of Sean's life. There's the story of humanity. Right? Now, if you're reading Genesis chapter 11 for the very first time, and some of you may be familiar with this story, but imagine you're reading this for the very first time. Mankind is at rebellion with God, and you get to this story, and you're thinking, what on earth is going to happen next? I mean, what did God do just a few chapters back when mankind was in rebellion towards Him? Flooded the earth, killed everyone and everything with the exception of Noah, Again, right, his family and the animals two by two. So you get to Genesis chapter 11 and you see God, right, mankind defying God. And you're thinking, okay, the next few verses most certainly will say something like, and God just flicked them into the sun. Okay, that's not what it says. But you're led to anticipate something along those lines. Now, God does respond, but here's what we're told. Here's how God responds. The Lord said, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So watch, the Lord scattered them there over the face of the whole planet, and they stopped building the tower. Before, everybody was speaking how many languages? One. By the way, we don't know if it was English or not, so that sounds overly patriotic. It's just to keep your attention. We have no idea what the language was. No clue. But what we do know is that there was one. And at this point, we go from one to many. All of the known languages in the world today come from this historical biblical event. Right? English, Spanish, Mandarin, all the dialects that we have in the world today, they arise out of this event. We go from one language to multiple languages. We go from one location to multiple locations. And God scatters them. Now, if you're tracking with the story at this point, the question is begging. What does God want? What did God want in Genesis chapter 1? He wanted a planet full of people who knew him and worshipped him. God was after a people gathered to himself. I will be their God and they will be my... People is the refrain of Scripture. God desires a people gathered to Himself, but what has He done? It seems so paradoxical that He scattered them. So the question is begging, what is God going to do to gather the scattered? The good news is, we don't have to go far to find an answer, because just a chapter later, God is going to start the gathering process, and He's going to do it through the life of one man. And we're told in Genesis chapter 12 that the Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household. And Abram, I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. God's going to pick one man. Bible tells us his name is Abram. The Bible also tells us that he is 75 years old. Okay. In America, we have a word for that. It's called what? I was thinking retired, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. And God comes in and breaks in, interrupts Abram's life and his agenda, and commands him to leave. Okay, it's not a great suggestion, it's not a great idea, it's not if it's convenient for Abraham, or if he's up for it, or if he likes the idea, it is a clear-cut command. Abraham, go. And get used to hearing God say it, because he's going to repeat it over and over and over again throughout the entire scriptures. Go, leave. Abraham, pack up your stuff and get out. And what is it that he's actually asking Abram to leave? Well, look at what the text tells us. Abram, I want you to leave your land. At the time, Abram was living in the land of Ur. It was a port city that sat in the Persian Gulf. It was rich in trade, rich in commerce, rich in materialism, and it was soaked in idolatry. Abraham was an idol worshiper before God spoke to him and saved him. How do we know that? Because Joshua chapter 24 tells us so. Abram was not looking for God. He was not interested in God. No one seeks God. No, not one. But God steps in and speaks. And when he speaks, he's commanding him to leave his land and idolatry. Abraham, I want there to be a decisive break away that you would turn from your idols, like Paul says to the Thessalonian church, and turn away from your idols into the living God. And not only do I want you to leave your land, but Abraham, I also want you to leave your family, right? Your household, your father, the people who you know, who you share the closest relationships with. I want there to be a decisive break away from them as well. Abraham, leave your father. What's so significant about that? Well, if Abraham outlives his father, then there's a strong likelihood that Abraham will take inheritance from his father, right? He will be given inheritance from his father. And the reason I pause to point this out is because we need to really, really settle in here And recognize what it is that God is asking Abraham to leave. Abraham, leave your family structure, your livelihood, your lifeline, and leave your father and the inheritance that he will leave to you. If you're Abram, you don't get the choice of exploring career options. Right? If you're Abraham, what are you going to do when you grow up? What your daddy does and if you're Abram, you don't get to think about where you want to live. Where are you going to live? Where your daddy lives. Abram, you're going to do what your dad does. You're going to live where your dad lives. And if you outlive him, you'll get his inheritance. But I'm commanding you to walk away from your father and his household. What is it exactly that God's asking and commanding Abraham to do? Leave all of it. Abram, I want you to strike a match And I want you to throw it onto your 401k, and I want you to watch it burn. Here's why. Abraham, I'm commanding you to leave your family because I'm actually going to give you a family. I'm going to give you descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky and more numerous than the sands on the sea. Abraham, I'm commanding you to leave your father because, Abraham, I'm going to be your father. And if you get me, Abraham, you get what? Everything. Right? You get everything. If we get God, Abraham, if you get God, then you get everything. Abraham, not only am I going to give you land, not only going to give you descendants, not only going to give you material blessings, God's eventually going to bless him with those things. Uh, Theologians and scholars will argue that Abraham may have been one of the wealthiest men in the ancient Near East. But that's not what God is ultimately after here. He's commanding him to leave and tells him to go to a land that he will show him. And notice God does not bother to tell him where he's going or how long he's even staying. Which is like the worst mission trip recruitment tactic you could ever use. (laughs) Okay? Imagine Jacob's like, hey, we're going to go on a mission trip. Where? I don't know. How long are you gonna stay? We also don't have that information. <laughs> but there's a sign up sheet in the back. Who would be interested in joining us? No one would, right? But who's speaking here? God is speaking, the living God who spoke the universe into existence. And not only does he command Abram to leave, but watch what he goes on to promise him. Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation and bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And Abram, don't miss that part at the bottom. Through you, all peoples will one day be blessed. Abraham, I'm blessing you in order for you to be a blessing. The blessing is coming to you because I'm intending to move it to the nations. Depending on what translation of scripture you may read, it may say families, nations, peoples, tribes... Clans, all those words for the most part are synonymous. But here's the point. Abraham, you're blessed in order to be a blessing. And who's the blessing for? All peoples, all tribes, Jews and Gentiles. And what is the blessing that God's going to bless Abraham with? Well, it's not only those monetary, temporary, earthly things, but the ultimate blessing that God is talking about right here that he's going to bless Abraham with. What's the ultimate blessing? What's the best thing that God could give us? It's not stuff, it's himself. The ultimate blessing that God is talking about right here in Genesis 12 is the gospel. How do we know that? Because Paul's going to tell us over in Galatians 3.8 that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. That's the ultimate blessing that God's talking about here is the good news. The good news about what? That what we messed up back in Genesis chapter 3 when we sinned against God, that God is going to fix. Right? We don't fix it. We can't fix it. We are helpless and hopeless. But God's promising that He will fix our sin problem. And how is He going to do it? By sending Jesus Christ down through Abraham's family bloodline. And Jesus is going to step onto the scene fully God and fully man. And He's going to live the perfect sinless life that none of us in this room, including myself, have ever got a shot at living. Perfect in thought, perfect in word, perfect in deed. Just the thoughts. Just think about the sinful thoughts that you may have had this morning. The sinful thoughts that I've had this morning. Perfect in thought, word, and deed. And then He's going to march to the cross and He's going to die the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins in our place, as our substitute, lives the life we couldn't live, dies the death that we deserve to die, he's buried in the grave, and then three days later, God the Father, through the power of the Spirit, the whole Trinity is involved, raises the Son from the dead, proving to the world that he's exactly who he said he was. And God goes on to promise that whoever, rich, poor, tall, short, fat, skinny, black, white, whoever will turn from their sins and look to Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, and trust in Him. God says, I'll forgive you of your sins, wipe your slate clean, and give you life forever with Me. To enjoy Me. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we might be talking about missions, but hear me say, non-Christian, come to Christ. If you've not Man, grab one of the pastors, grab somebody sitting next to you and talk it through with them. Right? You have no idea when your last breath will come. You have no idea what's coming this afternoon. Do not wait to come to Christ if you're here and you're not a Christian. He is holding out mercy and grace to you, offering you a chance. Repent and believe in him. And if you are a Christian, then recognize this morning, Christian, that the gospel has come to us because it's on its way. Where? To someone else, somewhere else. And God is saying to Abraham, I am blessing you because you are going to be a blessing to the nations. The gospel is coming down through you, Abraham, because it's eventually on its way to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so what we see right from Genesis 12 forward is that God really begins to reveal and fulfill His purpose through this promise. And what's the promise? To bless all peoples, right? If you're taking notes, this right here is the one statement summary of this morning's talk that God reveals and fulfills His purpose through His promise. And what promise is that? In Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And watch how the promise, watch how the promise River City continues. It doesn't stop with Abram, but it goes on to Isaac and it goes on to Jacob. Isaac, through you, all nations will be blessed. Jacob, through you, all peoples will be blessed. And so God comes not only to one man, but he comes to one family, Abram's family. And with this family, he is going to set his purpose in motion to start gathering the nations back to himself. And as you turn the page right out of Genesis and you begin to walk through the Old Testament, what you're going to see is that we go from one man, Abram, to one family, to one nation, the nation of Israel. And God's blessing Israel in order that Israel might be a blessing. Israel was to be a light to the nations. And through the entire Old Testament, God is working in and through Israel to make Himself known to the nations around the people of Israel. And I want to show you very quickly a number of examples from the Old Testament where God is at work in His faithfulness, in His wisdom, in His plans to make Himself known not only to the Israelites, but to many, many others. And we see this right away in the Exodus account right away in the Exodus account. Why did God drop the 10 plagues on Egypt? Why not one and done? Would have made for a very short story, wouldn't it? But God drops 10 plagues on the nation of Israel, and we're told why in Exodus 9:16 that it was for this purpose that God raised up Pharaoh, that he allowed Israel to suffer for 400 years. We ever thought about that? Four centuries that Israel was allowed to suffer. In order that He might show His power and so that His name might be proclaimed where, River City? What does it say? In all the earth, right? The whole Exodus event was not only about Israel's salvation, but it was about God making Himself known to the Egyptians. Over a half a dozen times, God says, I'm doing what I'm doing so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Not only the Israelites, but the Egyptians. And not only the Egyptians, but the text plainly says who? The whole earth. Everybody was watching. Egypt. They were the most powerful nation in the known world. And here they are in ashes. And God has demonstrated His power to them. Not only do we see it in the ten plagues, but eventually we know that the Israelites head into the desert. Moses goes to the mountain and gets the law. And we see God fulfilling His purpose through His promise to make Himself known to all peoples in the giving of the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 4.6, Moses tells the Israelites, Observe the commandments carefully, for this will show your wisdom and your understanding to who? The nations. When God gave the law to Israel, and when Israel obeyed, which was few and far between... Israel's obedience to God was a reflection of God to the surrounding nations. When God gave the Ten Commandments, it wasn't just for Israel. In the same way that the Exodus was not only for Israel. God is at work to fulfill His purpose through this promise to Abraham to bless all nations. And so in the Ten Plagues, in the Ten Commandments... Um, Another story. How many of you are familiar with the story of David and Goliath? Okay, three of us. Okay, good. (laughs) Why does God allow David to slaughter Goliath? It's like every peewee coach's perfect story. (laughs) The underdog, right? There's a chance. Hang in there. God can defeat the giants in your life. Maybe you've heard something like that. Maybe you've said something like that. But what's the point of the story of David and Goliath? I I think it has far less to do with David and Goliath and far more to do with God. In fact, we're told, right, in 1 Samuel, David says, Goliath, this day I will strike you down. And here's why I'm going to strike you down. It's so that all the earth might know that there is a God in Israel. The miracle that God pulls off when David slaughters Goliath is so that the Israelites and the Philistines and all the earth will hear about it and learn right? who the true and living God is. And so I I show you these examples. The Ten Plagues, the Ten Commandments, David and Goliath, the Red Sea. We don't even have time, and I wish we did. I don't even have time to walk through. Look at all of these other examples from the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, the queen of Sheba who comes to visit Solomon and to hear of his wisdom, the mixed multitude that left Egypt with the Israelites, Naaman, the Syrian, right, Rahab, the Canaanite, Ruth, the Moabite, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel and the lion's den, where King Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter to every tongue, tribe, and nation claiming who the God of Israel is, when Cyrus is, and Darius are doing the same things, Or how about the whole book of Jonah? Four chapters where God says to Jonah, Jonah, go, and Jonah says what? God says go, and Jonah's like, oh, Lord. I've just been waiting for the opportunity. I couldn't be more thrilled to take what you tell me to the Ninevites. I've just been waiting, salivating at the opportunity to be involved in your global purpose. Just give me a chance to get in there. God says go, Jonah says. No, God says go, Jonah says. And we're right back to Genesis chapter what? 11. God says go, mankind says what? Nah. Sure, if it's convenient, if it doesn't interrupt my life, If it doesn't cost anything, if it fits my plans, if it fits my agenda, if it fits my trajectory, I'll think about it. But when God speaks, right, God says, go. He tells him that at the Tower of Babel. He tells Abraham that. He tells Moses that. He's telling Jonah that. Through the whole Old Testament, right, God is working to fulfill his promise, right, to bless all peoples. And what's fascinating, you guys, is as we turn the page out of the Old Testament and into the New, it's, it's really the same story. And I'm going to show you that in just a second. We see this same story not only being fulfilled in the New Testament, but uh, this is all over in the major prophets, the minor prophets. It's all over in the Psalms. 150 Psalms, and by my count, <clears throat> God mentions His purpose to fulfill His promise to bless all peoples over 90 times in Psalms. Here's just one that you guys are probably familiar with, right? Psalm 46:10 says be still, you guys know the rest of it. Be still and know that I am God, right? Be still and know that I am God. That's what it says, and this is what it usually looks like. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, I have pictures like this hanging in my house. I know. I know they hang in your house because I've stayed in your houses before. Sometimes they hang in the bathroom. It seems like a good place for a picture like this to be hanging. It's probably a good place to be still, too. Um, You've seen this kind of stuff before, right? Have you not? We all have. It's everywhere. Peaceful, quiet, serene. If it's not a picture of the woods, it's a picture on the beach somewhere. The sun's setting, waves crashing. Maybe there's footprints in the sand. (laughs) Okay, But if you read Psalm 46, Psalm 46 doesn't look anything like this. All chaos is breaking loose in Psalm 46. Mountains are quaking. Stuff's melting. Welcome to evangelical Christianity in America. But who knew? Who knew there's a whole second half to sitting still and knowing who God is? Because God takes it a step further and He says this, here's why you can sit still and know that I am God. Because I'm intending to fulfill my promise to exalt myself in the whole world among all the nations. There's a lot to be said here, not just by way of missions, but even so much of what we are walking through in our present day and age and culture and moment. Oh man, the world's falling apart. It's crazy. What about, and what's God saying to us? Sit still. Know that I am God. And recognize that no matter what disease is running rampant in this world. No matter what leaders are in charge or not in charge. Some of you guys are like, you ain't got time to open that can of worms. Okay. Okay. Be still and recognize that I put leaders in charge. I dissolve nations. They are to me like dust. Because my purpose and my plan will stand to make myself known. In America, in Cambodia, in China, in Afghanistan. I will exalt myself among the nations because I have promised that it will be so. And He's doing it through the Ten Plagues, the Ten Commandments, the Red Sea, the River Jordan, David and Goliath, Solomon's Wisdom, the Book of Jonah, Naaman the Syrian. And He's doing it in the New Testament. And as you turn the page from the Old Testament to the New, Christ steps onto the scene. He lives a perfect, sinless life. Marches to the cross. Dies a death that we deserve to die. Rises from the dead. And post-resurrection, right? Post-resurrection, He gives the church what we call the Great Commission. Some of you guys are like, oh man, we're finally there. (laughs) That whole mission stuff. But what Jesus says in the Great Commission, River City, is not new. He is only repeating what God has promised would happen to Abram. That the nations would be blessed and the means by which God is blessing the nations is the church. Right, It's the institution of the church. And so here, hear Jesus' words. And not only does He say it once, He says it multiple times. Matthew 28, that passage that we're probably most familiar with. To go. There it is again. Go. God says go and we say what? Uh, You're like, I don't know how to answer it. (laughs) God says go and make disciples of all nations. Go into all the world and preach the good news. Forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all the nations. And as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. And fellas, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Because what I'm commanding you to go do as you bear witness about me is me fulfilling what I had promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. The Gospel, again, you guys, has come to us because it's on its way to someone else across the street, right? Across the desk, across the ocean. I was not interested in missions because I wasn't necessarily convinced that it was my thing. But when you begin to see that it's God's thing, that it matters to the head. You're left to ask the question, does it matter to me? I've come to realize that it's, 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 it's crazy talk for a Christian to say, oh, I'm really into Jesus, but I'm not into missions. That's like a bird saying, I'm not into air. Back to the birds, right, Kyle? That's like a fish saying, I'm not into water. For a Christian to say, I'm really into Jesus, but I'm not into his global purpose. And so we're left to ask ourselves, man, does missions matter to us? It's evident from God's word that it matters to him. And what God wanted in Genesis chapter one, watch, God's going to get. Because eventually we see, right, as the New Testament church is birthed and the gospel begins to go out in the book of Acts, we get to the Acts chapter 20, what? Eight. And the Gospel is on its way to the ends of the earth. Which is why we call it Acts 20 what? 9. Because it's still on its way to the ends of the earth. And we, today, in 2021, are living between Acts 28 and Revelation. But the hope, the hope is that God is good for His Word. Because what we see in Revelation 7, 9 is that one day John gets a vision of what heaven will look like. And in the new heavens and in the new earth, John says, after this I looked, and they're before me. This is what Anne read earlier. There was this great multitude that no one could count. There's so many people in heaven that John couldn't even put a number on it. But what he's able to observe is that they're from where? They're from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. And they are standing around the throne, worshipping who? Who? The Lamb, Christ Jesus. What is so phenomenal about this? What's so amazing about this? Is that God promised, right? Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful, multiply and do what? Fill the earth. What did God want in Genesis chapter 1? A planet full of people gathered to Himself who knew Him, who praised Him, and who worshipped Him. And what does God get? A planet full of people who know Him and who worship Him. God will get a people for Himself from all peoples. Translation, right? Interpretation, heaven's going to be like a multicultural Jesus party. Okay? That's right. Some of you are like, should I celebrate that? Yes! Absolutely we should. Here's what I want you to see. Look up here. Promise made. Promise what? Just about dropped it. (laughs) Promise kept. Promise made. Promise kept. God is going, listen to me. God's going to see this thing through. This isn't some reverse psychology. This isn't some guilt trip here. God's going to see this thing through whether we get on board or whether we get involved or not. The loss is not His. The loss is whose? Ours. The joy, right, of walking with Him. The pains of walking with Him to see His name known among all the nations. What became very obvious to me at the end of my conversation with this minister was that missions Mattered to God. And if it mattered to God, then it should have mattered to me. When I got married to my wife Meredith, I did not know the first thing about Woodwick candles. Raise your hand if you know what Woodwick candles are. Look around, most of the ladies in the room, raise up high. Woodwick candles. Right they're these candles and you know why they call them woodwick candles because they have a wooden wick. You guy's are like, oh, he said he was from Arkansas earlier. <laughs> they have a wooden wick. I didn't know anything about woodwick candles when I got married to my wife. but I've come to learn a lot about the fireside scent because it's a scent that Meredith particularly appreciates. Woodwick candles matter to Meredith. Therefore, Woodwick wood, candles matter to who? To Sean. It's what happens when you get married. <laughs> I grew up riding motorcycles and wrenching, right, on hot rods. Motorcycles matter to Sean, therefore, motorcycles matter to Sean. Some of you saw that coming. the illustration you guys listen the illustration is very self-explanatory the bible says that when we become believers in jesus christ that we are united to him by faith that he is the head and we are the body that he is the groom and we are the bride and if it matters to him then the question we need to be asking ourselves is does it matter to us. I'd love to invite you to come back this evening at 5 p.m. And we're going to spend some time this evening and tomorrow night at 6.30. Walking through, what do we do next? Right? It's very crystal clear that missions matters to God from Genesis to Revelation. But what do we do next? Does that mean that all of us are going to end up in Ooga land? Okay, not necessarily. But we all have a part to play if we are all united to him. And so let me invite you to come back this evening and even tomorrow night. If you have kids, I recognize that it's difficult and inconvenient. I'm with you. Okay, Um, we have a six year old, a four year old and a six week old. In fact, you can actually be praying for my wife this afternoon um, that our house isn't burned to the ground by the time I get home. Just that God would help her. But I understand that if you have kids, there's a struggle. But I I would love for you to come back this evening and for us to spend time together walking through. If it matters to us, then what do we do next? So let me pray for us. And I hope to see you this evening. Father, thank you for a chance to open up your word. And um, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold you, to see your purpose and plan. And Holy Spirit, that you would bring about conviction where needed. And that we would leave here both challenged and encouraged and hopeful. God, and even desirous to be asking you what part you would have us to play in these purposes. I thank you for River City, what you're doing here. And just a chance to be with this body this weekend and in the days to come. And talk about and work through, God, what you might want from us as your people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.